Hi, you're listening to the podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Ogden, Utah. My name is John Draskovic. I'm the pastor here. And what you'll hear is the message, the sermon from the week's worship before. And uh, you can always check out the full service that has the music and our prayers and liturgy on our YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube, you can just search First Presbyterian Church Ogden and you can find us there. We've got all our services recorded, including the, the most recent um, live stream of our, of our service. I hope you enjoy this podcast and you find it to be a blessing. Grace and peace to you, my friends, in the name of Jesus Christ. Welcome to our podcast for Sunday, November 12th, here at First Presbyterian Church. This is the message from uh, that Sunday, and we've been making our way through John's Gospel, if you've been following along in the podcast or in our worship services. We are at the tail end of John chapter 19. So we start in verse 16, go all the way through the end of the chapter. It's actually quite a long passage, but it's really, really crucial, important part of the story. And I'd encourage you to go ahead and read that through because we make direct references to the different sections of that reading. And uh, what we're talking about today, the, the betrayal has happened, the trials have happened, and now we're at that crucial moment of the crucifixion of Jesus. So that's what we're going to be engaging in. And I I make some references to the liturgical calendar, which if you're uh, maybe part of of a Christian tradition that did not observe the liturgical calendar might be a little confusing or you're not sure what I'm talking about, but there, right, just as we have uh, uh, the Gregorian calendar, starts in January, goes through December, there is a liturgical, a Christian calendar that actually starts in Advent which is usually the very end of November or the beginning of December and goes all the way through the end of the year, concludes with Christ the King Sunday, which is the Sunday right before Advent starts. And there's a couple of high points. One of the high points is Christmas. Another one is Easter. And we've got that season of Lent that leads up to Easter, culminating with Holy Week. And so we we do talk a little bit about that. So I just wanted to give you a heads up about that. Okay, now let's get into the message. And uh, we'll, we'll dive into the crucifixion itself, this high point in the Christian story. Would you join me in a moment of prayer? Lord, whom should we go? You're the one with the words of life, eternal life. You are the one within whom our hope for salvation lies. For it is in you that death has been conquered through Jesus. Baptized in him, we're raised to new life, and by the power of your spirit, Lord, speak to us your promises of new life, so that we might hear your truth and enjoy you forever. Amen. So I've been trying to figure out this week how to shorten what we're covering today. And as you could tell from what Tina read, I just felt like it was important that we hear the whole thing, because this really is the crux of the story. And we cover this. This is something that we talk about every year, because the Christian calendar is built on it, right? We have that season of Lent that leads up to Holy Week, the week before Easter, that starts with the triumphal entry 
of Jesus into Jerusalem and then culminates with Resurrection Sunday, Easter. And what we're talking about today is what we normally cover on Good Friday. And we hear the story, we hear the scriptures read, but rarely do we have time to really go into it. And that's been really one of the beautiful things about going through the gospel the way that we've been doing it this year is that we've got some time to really dig into it. And so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, we're in the thick of the, what, what in the calendar they call the tritium, the, the three kind of holy days that go from evening on Maundy Thursday. That's the day when we remember the Last Supper. Maundy means commandment. It's Latin for uh, commandment. Right, Jesus gives his, fellow, his uh, disciples a commandment, love each other as I have loved you. Through Friday, Good Friday, the paradox of which God saves through death, right? and that's why we call it good, all the way through Easter Sunday, the evening of Easter Sunday. And we actually uh, go through Saturday, but we never talk about Saturday. Saturday is, it's actually skipped over. In the Gospels, you go from Friday evening, when they take Jesus down off the cross, to on the morning of the first day. But that Saturday, what we call Holy Saturday, is I think it's actually really important. This is when the church traditionally holds a vigil, the Easter vigil. This Saturday is kind of like the day without the gospel. We don't know what's going on. Nobody knows what was going on that day. We don't know where Jesus was, what he was doing. We just know that he was not with us anymore. And I think that Saturday of Holy Week, as we're waiting for the open and empty tomb on Easter morning, is the day when we're reminded that sometimes you got to sit in pain. Sometimes life is full of anguish. And we like to understandably ignore Holy Saturday because of that. But I think it's really a profound part of the human experience. And we'd all do well to spend some time with it. Because if you have ever wondered where God is, if you have ever wondered, am I just saying these prayers out into the emptiness of space or is somebody actually hearing them? If you've ever felt alone, if you've ever known despair, right, deep down in your soul, then you know Holy Saturday. And that's why we hold that day in vigil. Because we all know the experience of a day without the gospel. But we also remind ourselves that the night is darkest just before the dawn. And so... Next week, we'll talk about resurrection. This week, we're going to sit with Good Friday in the crucifixion. Okay, so John's version of the story. Every one of the gospel writers tells it a little bit different. John could have done the Mel Gibson Passion of the Christ, where he tells it in really gory detail, but he doesn't. I don't know if you, if you kind of read through it again. It's, he doesn't add a lot of details. He makes it pretty undramatic. He just gives you the facts, ma'am. And sometimes um, we get so focused in on the little details or the little parts of the story, we focus in on a couple verses that we miss the big picture, the context of what's actually going on. So I just want to remind us here, and I'm going to go all the way back 
to the beginning. I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 3. This is what happens right in the, in the Adam and Eve story, right after they eat of the fruit. And the Lord speaks to the serpent. Okay? And he says these things. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. Between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. What we heard today is the culmination of that story. What started in Genesis 3 gets brought to its conclusion today in John 19. So let's get into that story, all right? John starts it off by saying, so they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull in Hebrew, Golgotha. The word that John uses there, they took Jesus, you could translate, they received him, or they took him on. This is the same word that John uses in the prologue in the beginning, when it says the word became flesh and the word came to his own, and his own did not take him on. His own did not receive him. And so when they wouldn't in the beginning take him on, they wouldn't receive him, now they actually are. They are taking him, but only to kill him. And they don't realize that maybe they're taking on more than they realized. So they take him to the place of the skull, which actually, ironically, becomes the place of reconciliation. The place of new Passover, the place of life. And there seems to be something about the way that God sets up creation. The way that the world is organized. The way that the the grain of the universe flows, that life seems to only come out of death. I don't know why that is, but that just seems to be the way that things are ordered. And this is true biologically, but it's also true according to our human experience, right? In order for there to be new life, in order for you to grow, in order for you to mature, in order for you to turn the page on the next chapter in your life, you know something has to die. You have to let go of the old in order to walk into the new. You talk to anybody who's wrestled with addictions in their life, and they know that story really well. I mean, it's part of human growth and development. Once I was a child, I thought like a child and I acted like a child, but I am a child no longer. I have to close that chapter, and I have to act like an adult now. We could use more adults, huh? (laughs) So Jesus then is crucified. He's put in the center, in between two others. They're not mentioned as criminals in John, but I, last I checked, you don't get crucified for jaywalking, so they probably did something wrong. And this is important, this little detail that he's put in the middle of them. Right? On Resurrection Sunday, when Jesus shows up, where does he show up? in the middle of the disciples. He, he appears there. And then, then on the second Sunday, the week after Easter Sunday, he shows up again in the middle of everybody. I think G, uh, John reminds us of this because he's trying to give us, the church, the reminder that Jesus needs to be in the middle of everything that we do, in the center of our life, just as he was on that Good Friday. Right? We, as the church, we've got one center point around which everything else revolves. You know, that's what the universe means, right? To turn around one point, right? We have one 
point in our universe that we revolve around. It's the person, the work, the life of the crucified and risen Christ. And so that's what we do when we gather together. That's who we hold when we pray. That's who we speak to, pour our hearts out to. Is who we cast our life upon, the center, the one person, Jesus, the crucified one. We hear it proclaimed in the scriptures and lifted up in the sermon. We gather around the table. Remember, he said, this is, remember me. This is my body. This is my blood given up for you, right? It is all about Jesus. And so, if, I don't know if anybody ever says like, gosh, you guys talk about Jesus a whole lot. You're like, yeah, yeah, we do. That's the point. Because it's all about him. He's the center. And everything else revolves around that. And then Pilate has a sign placed at the top of the cross, above Jesus. And he has it written in the three main languages of the people of that day, in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Hebrew was the religious language, Latin was the political and the secular language, and Greek was the commercial and the intellectual language. And the sign said, Jesus, Nazarene, King of the Jews. It was four words. And you see this oftentimes abbreviated. If you see a crucifix in particular, it'll say I-N-R-I, right? That's familiar to you, right? I know you've seen that. And you've always wondered to yourself, what does that mean? Well, that comes from the Latin for uh, Jesu Nazarenus Rex Judeorum, Jesus the Nazarene King of the Jews. That's what that is. And that sign, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews, is the very first written gospel in its bare bones minimum. The irony's here, right? Pilate writes out the first gospel message. And he maybe meant it as a joke, like he was trying to mock the Jews. Uh, they didn't think it was very funny. They, they implore him to change it. They go, hey, uh, Hey, Pilate, can you put in there, he said, I know it's like a little difference to you, but it's a big difference to us. And Pilate's response is, hey, I've written what I've written. So the inscription remains in most depictions of Jesus on the cross. Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. And this invites the question for us. Is that true for us today? Is he our king as well? And so above him, you've got this sign proclaiming his royal messianic uh, status, being fulfilled in the promises of God. And then below him, you've got these guards who are shooting dice, gambling for his belongings, where just feet above their heads, they have no idea, but the central act in history, in world history, is taking place, and they're totally, totally clueless to it. So isn't that interesting that on one hand above him, you've got this royal message, the gospel in bare minimum, and then below him, these people who are acting out in a, in a vulgar way, totally oblivious. And the cross does this, right? It's like a coincidence of opposites, these two things that don't belong together intersecting. You've got the horizontal beam 
right? And oftentimes people have talked about this as our relationship with one another, the human dimension that intersects with the vertical beam, which is our relationship with God, God descending to us and bringing us up with him. You've got Jesus suspended between heaven and earth. This is the coincidence of opposites in the cross. You've got the royal sign above him and the humiliation that's happening below him. So three times while Jesus is on the cross, he says that the work he's come to do is finished. He uses that word, it is finished. It's brought to its completion to telestai. It's been made complete and whole. And this actually lines up these words that Jesus says from the cross. Line up. I've mentioned Genesis earlier when the Lord spoke to the serpent about his head being crushed and biting the heel of the woman's seed. There's this beautiful painting, by the way. If I had more foresight, I would have had us uh, see it today. But there's this beautiful painting of Mary with um, the, the serpent wrapped around her leg, stomping on the head of the serpent. Yeah, it's this beautiful, beautiful painting. And you see um, Eve there with the apple in one hand, and Mary and Eve are holding hands. It's, it's touching. Okay, next year. And there's this tie. It is finished. Remember, that's what the Lord said after creation was made. I've finished it. This is all finished. And now here it is, full circle. Jesus is saying, and it's finished. Creation has been made whole again. Now all things have been brought to their completion by his death on the cross. And there's this mysterious tension here that Christ has done it. It is completed. He's done all the work that needs to be done. And yet somehow there's this unfolding that still has to happen. We've been made perfect, but we're still somehow on our way to perfection. We have the whole of salvation, but we're not yet at that goal. Paul says we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And there's a great divine mystery in that. And then within the context of having finished this work, Jesus gives his last I am statement. This is the last one. We've heard a whole bunch of them in John's gospel. And this one's, a, it's kind of easy to miss. It's actually, it's, it's probably one of the lowliest and most humble of Jesus' I am statement. It's a one-word sentence. He says, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. And maybe this is this most humble of his I am's is the appropriate one to end on. Because the word became flesh, crucified, dying, thirsting flesh. And we're reminded that that is the God that we worship the one who humbled himself to become one of us. And then to quench that thirst, somebody, we don't know who, maybe it was even one of the soldiers, we're not really sure, but they take a hyssop branch and they put a sponge on it and they dip it into some wine vinegar that was there that uh, was a, a common drink for the soldiers at the time and they dunk it into it and they hold it up to him to parch his thirst. And this act is supposed to remind us, I think John wants us to know, using the the fact that he puts in there that it was a hyssop branch, that this thing that's happening right here is part of the atonement that God is making through the blood of the Lamb. Because on the Passover, 
Do you remember in Exodus, the Passover, they slaughtered the Passover lamb and they took a hyssop branch and they dipped it in the blood and they painted the lintel and the doorposts with the blood of the lamb. And so I don't think John does this by accident to tell us that it was the hyssop branch. What the blood of that lamb did then, the blood of Jesus from the cross will do now, but for the whole world. And then John tells us Jesus bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And because it wouldn't do to have three bodies hanging on crosses out in public for the Sabbath, especially the Sabbath that's going to start a Passover, they come to break the legs of those who are crucified. It was an act of mercy to speed the death. And so they break the legs of the two on either side of Jesus. But when they get to him, they realize they don't need to because he's already died. And one soldier pierces his side and blood and water come out. And John makes the point that this happened to fulfill that the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, it says, you're not going to break a bone of its body. And Jesus too didn't have a bone broken. And the prophet Zechariah said, they'll look upon the one whom they pierced. And so they ask Pilate to have the bodies taken away. And that verb that's used to take away is the same verb that the crowd was shouting when they wanted Jesus taken away. And it's the same verb that John the Baptist used when he said, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so three bodies are taken away. And one of them takes away with him the sin, the sin of the world. And what about that? What about that blood and the water? Okay. Lots of speculation around this. This is a fun game to play at parties. Okay. What does that mean? Well, this is generally what the church has thought about that, right? Yeah. Next dinner party, you say, so what do you think about the blood and the water? Huh? Many people have seen the blood as the Passover blood of the lamb tied to the Lord's Supper, right? Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood, which is shed for you for the sin of the world, the new covenant. And what the blood of that lamb did for Israel, the blood of this lamb will do for the cosmos. And then the water. Well, the water um, is, in John's gospel in particular, is a symbol of the giving of the Holy Spirit. And then the church is definitely, and we've seen that, right? The, the, The Samaritan woman at the well If you only asked of me, I would give you living water and it would flow out of you. And then Jesus stands up in the temple in John 7. If anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The person entrusting themselves to me will have rivers of living water pouring out of themselves. And he said this about the spirit who those who trusted in him were going to receive. And then the church has tied this to baptism. Right? The waters of baptism. And the life-giving spirit. And then the scene ends with two characters who we've met before, just very briefly. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Both are Jews, and they're kind of halfway disciples. And they show up in a new way in this part of the story. Both of them had come to Jesus earlier, but they, or they had defended him They didn't really want to make it be public. They didn't want to like really identify themselves with him. Now, now they show up in a big way. 
they do Jesus right. Take his body off the cross and give him a proper burial. They do it publicly. And John makes this point that the place of the crucifixion and the tomb where he's laid are in the same place. They're actually in a garden. We talked about this a little bit last week. The tie between what started with the first Adam in a garden, where he lost it, is made complete by the second Adam in a garden, where he regains it. And John's trying to tie together uh, physically these spaces, just as Friday and Sunday are tied together temporally, so that we'll have it in our heads as well. And so here we wait. Here we wait in the story. And next week, we'll pick up with the big celebration. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Your written word in these scriptures that we can turn to, that we can dissect, that we can learn from, that we can study, but also your living word, Jesus, and your Holy Spirit that guides us into truth. And so, Lord, on this day, as we remind ourselves of the crux of the story of salvation, as we remind ourselves of the crux, the cross, may we give our lives over in gratitude for what you have done for us. May we remember and hold dear all that you have given so that we too might be those who give ourselves away for the sake of this world. We pray it in Jesus' name, the Lord, the Savior, the King. Amen. Well, thank you, friends, for spending your time with us here at First Presbyterian Church. I hope that this message brought a little bit more light, and or maybe this week uh, a little bit of um, darkness of the, the reality of the crucifixion and what was going on in this story. Next week, we'll turn our attention to Easter Sunday. Uh, so there is hope at the end of the darkness of the cross. But if you're around, come join us. We'd love to see you at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning here at First Presbyterian Church in Ogden. We're located at 880 28th Street. You can also find us on YouTube where we live stream all of our services and then you can go back and watch them after the fact as well. Um, and shoot us, a, shoot us an email. Go to our website. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And um, of course, if you'd like to support the ministry of the church, please go to our website. Uh, you just put in your URL, www.fpcogden.org, and you can financially support the ministry of the church through that. Well, thank you. Blessings to you, and have a great week.